they should not and should never trust us for being like for having integrity in any matters that happen on chain. The whole purpose of blockchain is to eliminate trust assumptions. And like this is what ZKSync is all about. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. The show is made possible thanks to our incredible sponsors, Chainalysis and Flipside. Uh, we're recording this episode on December 12th, and we have a great interview coming with two members of the Matter Labs team, Alex and Anthony. And this is the team behind ZK Sync. We kind of dive into all uh, all things uh, ZK Sync and kind of explaining that that ZK roll that they're building and getting into more of the technical details of like what that. Uh, what an L2 and L3 environment looks like uh, in, in their vision. Uh, but before we dive into that interview, we are joined from by Matt and Westy from the BlockWorks research team. And we're going to kind of hit on all the latest market happenings uh, and a little bit of the, the world that we are all living in in crypto Twitter. Uh, Westy, can you kind of kick us off here? I, I know you got someone, someone on the hot seat for us. Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, for my hot seat, I have Sushi, who's a little strapped for cash at the moment. So sometime last week, Jared Gray, who's essentially the CEO of Sushi, the head chef, he uh, had a forum post um, that essentially outlined their finances, basically saying since he joined, their runway was cut from $9 million to $5 million, but that's not enough because they still only have one and a half years of runway, so that's, what, $7.5 million left in their treasury um, to pay employees. Um, so... The, the idea they had and that was outlined in the forum post was to direct uh, all revenue, which was originally going to ex-sushi holders, and actually direct that to the treasury to be able to pay out other uh, developers, um, which is pretty interesting um, because it's really the first sign of a DAO that's basically said, yeah, we're in trouble and we sort of need to cut back, cut costs, and figure out like more sustainable model to go from here. And so I wonder... Uh, where do we go from here with other DAOs that are struggling? Do they also come out and start to direct revenue instead to their token holders, but to their treasury? Um, so yeah, it's an interesting case. I hope Sushi comes out of this fine. They do have one and a half more years of runway, and I hope you know revenue helps there. Um, but yeah, struggling at the moment. I think it's interesting. I mean, it's definitely sad to see that they're running out of treasury funds. Um, you know, Sushi has a great team of developers supporting a whole bunch of different products. Shoyu, which is their NFT marketplace, I've heard rumors is going to launch in the next couple of weeks or months. So that's something to keep an eye. Um, Furo, I believe it's called, which is their DAO payment streaming platform, just reached like an all-time high in TVL. So like Sushi does seem to still be building and, you know, working hard. I definitely support their team. And I kind of hope this, this proposal does pass. I think it's far more important to have long-term sustainability and have these developers on board than it is to, you know, have, uh, I think it's something like, maybe fifty or $100,000 a month going back to the treasury. Last time I checked, not sure what it is now. It could be even less. So I think it's good, you know, build up the treasury. It's it's definitely a roadblock, but I don't think it's the end of the world for the Sushi Protocol. And uh, I definitely hope to see this governance proposal pass. Yep, Sean agree here with Matt. I mean, they're kind of like an OG in the DeFi space and, and a lot of people use Sushi on a lot of different chains. So rooting for them. And I also think it's it sucks to put them in the hot seat here because I think a lot of other protocols in the space today will probably, you know, ultimately face the same problem if they're not, you know, accruing value back to their treasury where they can then pay out developers to keep the thing running for the longer term. So I, I don't think this is, you know, the last that we'll see. Um, it's just kind of the, the first big one that we're, we're, we're having our eyes on with this problem. Do we know if they're doing anything to kind of 
compete a little more so on the trading volume side of things, right? So like obviously Uniswap V3 is really kicking everyone's ass in, in terms of volume, um, but Curve has their V2 protocol as well for concentrated liquidity. Uh, Matt, I know you're kind of more of the, the guy in the weeds of the Sushi protocol. Do you know if they have any plans for like a concentrated uh, liquidity approach or anything of that nature? Yeah, so Sushi has already built a concentrated liquidity AMM and the technology that goes with it, it's called Trident. Trident is deployed on, I believe, uh, I don't want to, I think two or three chains. It just deployed on Arbitrum. And the reason it's not deployed on Ethereum mainnet yet is they're waiting to see, you know, have like a longer trial on these smaller TVL chains, see how it goes, make any tweaks necessary before it eventually does go on mainnet. I was actually having a conversation in their Discord this morning about that and asking about when that might happen. Um, and it definitely is still expected in 2023, but uh, it could be a little while before we actually see it occur on mainnet. I don't want to put you on the spot here with like a very specific question, but do you know how Sushi comp uh, competes in terms of uh, deck swap volume on Arbitrum? Last I checked, they had a large portion of deck swap volume on Arbitrum as compared to on Ethereum mainnet, um, or sorry, a larger portion on Arbitrum. But I think a lot of that probably has to do with uh, airdrop farmers, which we've kind of talked about in other episodes, and people just playing around with lots of different protocols and, you know, trying to kind of, maybe it's not a, uh, it's not volume that's just native people actually looking to swap assets. It might be more like manipulation and things that uh, aren't really long-term sustainable. Yeah, that'd be really interesting to watch that kind of like dive into when that gets launched on mainnet and kind of see if it can compete with like even Curve V2 kind of like generally comes around in that, that second, second, uh, second place spot. I think generally speaking too, the reason for that, you know, sushi dominating volume on Arbitrum is it's a little bit harder to launch like a V3 pool on Uniswap than it is like a typical XYK pool on Sushi. So like that's why Sushi has seen uh, quite a bit more volume. Just tokens typically launch on Sushi before Uni V3 there. Um, but Matt, I'm curious who you got in your uh, hot seat today. My hot seat today is Binance. Um, you might want to call it FUD. I don't know what you'd call it, but there's a whole lot of rhetoric going around post their proof of reserves audit. So basically Binance did a proof of reserves audit that was supposed to prove if you have assets on Binance, they are backed. So Binance actually has those uh, the ability to to go and fund 100% of withdrawals. If every deposit went in withdrawal, they actually have the liquidity to, you know, fund, get to, so that everyone gets their money back out of the exchange. First, I believe Jesse Powell, who's the founder and CEO of Kraken, pointed out that there were some things that he didn't love about the proof of reserve audit. So he said that they grouped together BTCB, BT, BBTC, and BTC as one asset. So both of those other ones, BTCB and BBTC, are Binance wrapped Bitcoins. So when you say, okay, we have, let's say a thousand Bitcoin, that's, you know, some of it's any, any of these three types of Bitcoin, whether it's native Bitcoin or the other two, you would hope that you could actually see the Bitcoin backing those wrapped assets. Um, that was not the case. So maybe it's not, a, you know, it's, you can't really, it's hard to hundred percent trust that those big wrapped Bitcoins are actually backed by Bitcoin. We would prefer to have seen the actual Bitcoin uh, that was backing, you know, all customer deposits. Another thing that he pointed out, and this is Jesse Powell again, um, that it's the total, they had 97% of their Bitcoin deposits collateralized. And they said that there were 101% collateralized, over collateralized, if you include other assets. There was no transparency on what those assets were. 
a lot of people on Twitter seem to be speculating that it might be BNB. Um, and you know, this just works. So, okay. First of all, 97% backing is pretty solid. If you compare that to like the fractional reserve banking system, banks are not required to have nearly 90, 97% of your deposits backed by actual liquid dollars. But at the same time, I think that most people in crypto do hope that these exchanges have 100% of the actual assets to back that there is no fractional reserve, that it's a hundred percent reserved. Um, so seeing that this like was 97, 97% collateralized by these BTC, BTC, and the two wrapped Bitcoins, I think might have worried some people a little bit. So according to Nansen, there was $300 million in outflows just in the last 24 hours from Binance. So this is really why, in my opinion, they deserve to be in the hot seat. You know, whether or not the assets backing it, I think less, but definitely people are worried and withdrawing. So 100% in my head, that's why they are in the hot seat. I think lastly, Travis Kling, who is uh, the managing director of a now defunct crypto hedge fund who lost most of their money on FTX, tweeted today that Binance stopped allowing withdrawals, um, I believe, on ETH and BNB chains, not I forget, on, on, two, ETH, two, on two EVM compatible chains. Uh, and he just, you know, is pointing out that this isn't a good look and that this could be, you know, a scary sign. In my opinion, and this is such a, I, I hate saying this now, especially after the last six months or year with, you know, oh, there's a slight chance that FTX is insolvent. Well, as we saw, you know, they were insolvent. We saw the same thing with Celsius. We saw the same thing with BlockFi. So now I have a trouble saying, you know, but in my opinion, I think, you know, at the end of the day, get your money off of centralized exchanges, learn to do self-custody. It's worthwhile if you're doing it safely, you're lowering your risk. So there's no reason not to. Um, and that's all I'll say, I guess. Yeah, I would agree with everything you said, Matt. Um, everywhere there's been smoke this year there's been fire i think that's what ryan from bitwise said last week on our episode dan so i i agree they deserve to be in the hot seat and uh yeah i think it was just uh binance smart chain and ethereum for usdc withdrawals so you could still technically get you know native bitcoin out of the exchange or, or native eth out of the exchange but you know who knows how this uh how this actually changes considering we're recording on Monday, December the 12th, and it'll be uh, the 15th by the time this, this actually airs. So good chance uh, something change, changes between now and then. But I can move on over to my uh, cool throne. I've got Vance from Framework Ventures, his take on Twitter last week. I thought it was really good. It's related to the, the FTX drama. So they basically had zero Bitcoin and very little ETH, if any, by the time the last snapshot was taken uh, in terms of their holdings on the, on the chain. And he kind of made the case that the alt l1 rotation was inflated uh, as a result because it's highly probable that ftx alameda were taking customer deposits um, or even you know dollar deposits from bank accounts that were supposed to be buying certain assets and instead of buying those assets for their customers and custodying them they were actually buying soul serum you know their vc allocated uh, bags so that kind of like pumped those prices pumped other alt one alt layer one prices and then on top of that uh, you've got all these different L1s that are launching here in the future, like Aptos, um, Sui, or, or Aptos already launched, I think. But regardless, I think that all of those L1s that were seeded uh, in the you know aftermath of the Layer 1 season, I think they're kind of grossly overvalued, and that's what Vance said on Twitter. So he definitely got my, my cool throne for the week. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty wild that at that last sna snapshot for bankruptcy, there was zero Bitcoin that they held. Um, that either means that they sold all the Bitcoin that people had in their exchange or at least enough so that when there were mass withdrawals, it drew essentially their reserves to zero, which means, like you said, that they must have been selling Bitcoin and buying other assets. And I think we can pretty fairly speculate that that was Soul Serum, 
all the tokens that they had as collateral, um, which is pretty pretty wild uh, when you when you think about it. Um, and yeah, I, I agree. This definitely does um, mess with valuations for these L1s um, and maybe even L2s as well uh, compared to um, the base layers that we know have value, and that's Bitcoin and ETH. Um, so I wonder, um, you know, in the next cycle, does that continue? Um, how much adoption does an L2 or an L1 need to have when compared to ETH for it to actually have a similar valuation? Um, it's pretty tough now, given ETH's supply dynamics uh, after the merge in EIP-1559. Uh, it's it's really tough for another L1 to sort of compare to that, especially with the amount of activity and the amount of L2s that are building on Ethereum. Um, and so, yeah, I can't, I can't agree more. It definitely... Um, messes with the, those valuations going forward. Yeah, it, there's still on that first point you make, like that there is zero Bitcoin left, right? With all the billions of dollars of used customer deposits that are still stranded on FTX, surely some of those were held in Bitcoin, right? So like, it's hard to paint a picture that there wasn't this like commingling or funny business, whatever you want to call it, with customer deposits. Like that seems like a smoking gun to me. Like if you go back to you know some of these funds that. Uh, had their their uh, their deposits held on FTX for security and custody, like you're telling me, all those funds had zero Bitcoin exposure. Like I just find that super hard to believe. I'm consistently impressed with Vance and Framework's takes. Um, Framework being the VC fund that he's, I believe, the co-founder, managing director of. Framework has invested in Layer One, so to hear him say this, I think it it hits even like a little bit harder than maybe just anybody else. But uh, yeah, I would just echo that he. Definitely deserves to be in the cool throne, and I'm always impressed with him and Hasib and their VC funds, and just kind of how how uh, finger on the pulse they always are, and have great takes. Yeah, and on that last uh, cool throne, I, I think I got a good one for us, and it's really uh, those Starbucks NFTs, right? So those launched on the eighth, uh, and they're doing a pretty cool little program with those, right? So it's essentially like an odyssey where uh, participants kind of go through what they call journeys, and going through these journeys. You essentially collect these points, uh, and those points are then redeemable, or as well you can uh, like earn or purchase even uh, so NFTs called journey stamps that like are re- effectively redeemable for these different experiences, right? So I think some of the ones that they uh, have highlighted are like at certain Starbucks reserves, which are like the high-end Starbucks, if you will. Uh, there's like different experiences you can get in store. There's like uh, you can go visit some of their their coffee farms in Costa Rica if you I assume. Uh, are a, a diehard NFT collector for these these Starbucks NFTs. I'm sure they'd be quite hard to get, but it's pretty interesting to see this like really like these on-chain loyalty programs, especially from such a big name. Um, I know like the Starbucks loyalty program is is a massive one. They have a great app that makes it super easy uh, to use and interact with with uh, their loyalty program. So like kind of testing out this beta uh, of a like a real world use case for NFTs is really interesting. Uh, it's it's cool to like actually see this come to fruition at being, after being talked about for a few months. Uh, I think it's really important to note that this is all kind of going down on Polygon, which essentially seems to be, you know, we, we've seen like it was BizDev announcement after BizDev announcement, and now I think we're in the a couple couple months out of all those announcements, where you're going to be like actually seeing the the products that were announced all these months ago, which is is actually really exciting to to see these things kind of come come full circle. One thing I think is really interesting about the Starbucks NFTs is, you know, as someone that's super crypto native, like all of us, we all spend a lot of time. We know a lot about a lot of different NFT projects. You know, like oh, the pictures are stored on centralized servers. You know, there's so many things that we could point out as 
this is negative. This isn't really what we look for in NFTs. But I think if you ignore all of that for a minute and just look at this is a loyalty program and just like a very cool new thing that people that are already using the biggest loyalty program in the world are going to have access to. I think it's a really, really cool innovation and that one that should not be faded or ignored. Yeah, I think it's a really cool experiment and it has me think, can you apply something similar to other rewards programs? A lot of bigger ones. I think Amazon Prime is a, a great example. Um, but yeah, there's plenty of rewards programs and the biggest brands in the world. And so, like, how do you apply crypto um, to that? And so if Starbucks is successful here, I can imagine we see a lot of bigger brands start to tack on um, and either create, you know, NFT rewards or maybe something like Cole's Cash becomes an ERC-20. Um, maybe that's jumping the gun a bit. Um, but yeah, I think it's a cool experiment. I'm excited to see where things go. Yeah, me too. I'm super excited about this one. I personally go to Starbucks a good bit, like once a week. And like the rewards program is awesome. I get a free coffee like every month. So I'm definitely uh, going to gonna take part in this Odyssey thing. And I already signed up for the wait list. I also think it's cool that they're using Nifty Gateway and like letting people use credit cards to buy the NFTs. So like there's an actual marketplace and it's not as crypto native. So like you don't actually need a wallet or anything like that. So definitely excited to see how it plays out. And I also just think like every other company is probably watching this super closely. And if it is super successful, like you said, Westy, I think it was like everyone's going to have to develop a strategy around NFT loyalty. Dan, you want to get our uh, flip side chart of the day pulled up? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, Westy, while I get this, while I get this uh, pulled up, do you want to give us a, a little bit of background on what the ape staking is for the uh, board ape yacht club and co? Yeah, I can do my best. Uh, none of us are board AP holders, so we're not exactly experts on the, the mechanism here. But yeah, essentially, uh, Ape is the, sort of the, the governance token of the board AP Yacht Club universe, you could say. And they're trying to implement staking to um, essentially distribute the token uh, to more of their active users um, and essentially you know, give them a reason to... Uh, lock up the token to uh, give it more value um, and essentially if you have one of their nfts whether that's the board ape yacht club themselves or they have mutant apes as well as uh, kennel club which is their dog nft um, if you hold one of those or maybe a combination of something like the the mutant apes and the dogs uh, you can get uh, a higher apr on your staking and so those aprs are upwards of 200 to 300 percent which is pretty attractive um, and there's actually a, a trade going on where a lot of the board holders aren't exactly DeFi native like we are. And so they see 300% APR and they think it's really, really attractive, not realizing it's inflation. But they also don't hold any APE. They just hold the NFT. And so they need to buy into APE to then stake it and earn that yield. Um, and so, yeah, staking, uh, I think, went live or is going live um but yeah we can look into the data here awesome and yeah one of the there's a lot of great data on this dashboard it's uh created with Flipside data which is the most comprehensive on-chain data in crypto and it really gives you the insights that you need to work smarter uh, and so this dashboard was created by uh, with some custom with some custom queries uh, built on the mostly the ERC twenty transfers data, uh, and so we can see where these ape tokens have been uh, allocated in this case staked to. Uh, there's a bunch, great dashboard. We'll link to it in the show notes. Um, but one thing I want to highlight here is this chart on the far right. And for those listening rather than watching along on YouTube, uh, this is the distribution of ape stakers by their total 
staked volume. So basically, how many tokens does uh, what like basically bucketing the ape stakers into the number of tokens that they have staked uh, in a particular pool. Uh, so there's like uh, you can either just stake the just stake the ape token to a specific pool uh, by itself, or you can pool it alongside uh, your NFT. And so you can see like uh, the board ape yacht club pool here, uh, the mutant apes here, and the kennel club here. Uh, and one thing to note between the two is like the more expensive NFTs, right? The board ape yacht clubs themselves, those Gen One uh, NFTs, have the like this red color here is uh, ten thousand to a hundred thousand tokens staked. And they have by far the the largest sta uh, ape stakers, uh, right? So there's way more in this bucket. Roughly 60% of uh, all board ape yacht club pool stakers uh, are between 10,000 and 100,000 ape staked. So it looks like the whales are really hanging out uh, in that pool, which makes sense again because those NFTs tend to be costlier than the others. Uh, but one more time, just want to give a shout out to Flipside uh, for being able to you know make this da data free to everyone to query, and we can end up getting great dashboards like this one. Um, again, we're going to link to it in the show notes, but uh, alongside that, you also see a, a custom Flipside challenge or, or uh, a bounty posted to earn yourself some USDC. And so give, if you're uh, someone who likes building queries and building dashboards, definitely be sure to check that out, and you can earn up to $75 in USDC as well as improving your querying skills. Yeah, I just want to take a second too and, and thank our other wonderful sponsor, Chainalysis. They're one of the leading crypto analytics providers that are helping provide the tools to industry professionals to help legitimize our industry. They enable investors to track funds on chain with ease. And they also have some great uh, research on their site, which can be found there for free. So we'll be sure to link to that in the show notes as well. They offer some really cool courses on some really niche topics in crypto that really can't be found anywhere else. And, and that's pretty important, in my opinion, so that they actually educate people on, on you know, all things crypto. Uh, so, yeah, again, just go ahead and check, check out Chain Analysis. We'll put their uh, link to their website and their research in our show notes, and uh, we'll catch you guys in the interview. All right, everyone, welcome back. We have joined here by Anthony and Alex from ZK Sync, a team working on scaling Ethereum through their own ZK EVM. Uh, really excited to have you guys on today. I'd love to kind of dive into what all it is you're building and in the details, especially on the more of the technological side as well. Uh, but first, if we could kind of hit some of these recent highlights you had, uh, a pretty big announcement coming out around a $200 million raise as well as some other things. But if we can kind of dive into, you know, what, what was the meat of the $200 million raise as well as the, uh, the partnership with Open Zeppelin? What all does that entail? Uh, absolutely, really. Thank you uh, guys for inviting us. Really happy to be here and uh, happy to talk about these topics. I find them extremely important. Uh, at Matter Labs, we've been building ZK Sync now for four years. We started as a very small research group and we, we've been gradually focusing on the technological side of the product, just doing research and zero knowledge proofs and their application to, to scaling blockchains, to solving um, different technological challenges of, uh, of the scalability, breaking out of the scalability trilemma. And um, we were always very conservative and very, you know, like down, heads down, uh, doing doing the, the research work because there were a lot of unsolved questions in the zero knowledge proof space. The protocols were not mature enough. We didn't have Plonk. We didn't have Starks. Like everything was kind of vague. Uh, but recently, with, with all the recent research and development and, and uh, our work on, on ZKVM specifically, where the, where the pioneers of this technology, uh, things are now very, very clear. Like it's, we have a very strong vision on how to scale Ethereum in a way that will allow Ethereum to reach basically everyone in the world uh, at very affordable costs. And 
what we need now uh, was just like get enough resources on the engineering side and on the product side to fully implement this vision. So the, the phase of research is over and now it's a phase of pure implementation. And once we realized that, we, we figured, okay, now it's time to scale. And now we need much more resources than what we used to have in the past. And we reached out to the investor community, to, to, to the backers, and we closed the $200 million round uh, were led by uh, Blockchain Capital and Dragonfly with uh, participation of our previous investors from Andreessen Horowitz and, and, and a lot of other folks uh, that, who are important in the, in the space. Uh, but we, we made sure that we don't sacrifice the values that were the fundament that was the core of, of our project from the inception. And we always wanted ZK Sync to be just an extension of Ethereum. And we realized it's going to be a separate network, a separate layer on top of Ethereum. But we wanted to make sure that the community preserves the ownership of this. You know, because there are a lot of projects who people are uh, uh, degradingly call like VC coins things like oh they, those guys sold their soul for a lot of money and they're, they are now just like gonna pump and dump the token whatever we never uh you know like we, we never wanted to to go in this direction whatsoever like we were never eager to introduce a token we, we were just building technology um that we will then use to to scale it and like if token is a necessary part of it we're going to use the token if it, it, it like we don't need it for some functions we're not going to use it. uh we came conclusion that we'll, we will eventually need the token to decentralize the sequencer and we will talk more about this in, in this conversation but the the best way like we, we don't have to reinvent the wheel we don't have to reinvent every single technology every single approach we, we can take whatever works and focus on the core innovation which is zero knowledge proofs and scalability we're using snarks so we realized that the best way to decentralize things today is using tokens for creating community validators but we made sure that in all our, in, you know, like in, in, in like all the commitments we have, all the promises we make to anyone, uh, we made very clear that two thirds of whatever initial token supply is going to be created will be reserved for the community. And we made sure that the community has, you know, that that's, that's necessary, but not a sufficient condition. Because if you have something that uh, can eventually be accumulated in the hands of a few people, if those few people will have tremendous power, then it doesn't matter that you give the rest to the community or whatever. So we wanted to make sure that the community remains the guardian of the project and of the project values and ethos, and that it always remains in sync uh, with the values and ethos of Ethereum and essentially remains the same thing. That is why we're doing full open source with MIT Apache license, which is a full permissive open source not some fake invention that will say, oh yeah, code is visible, you, you use it, or like, oh yeah, sure, it's open source, but you can only use it for our project. No, like we, that would prevent people from being able to fork the project in case the original inventors or like the operators of, of this, the validators of, of this network at some point would become malicious. And that is extremely important. That, that, that gives the ultimate control to the community no matter what token distribution, no matter like if if we became, you know, like people can change over time. People can just go crazy and do you know, completely uh, unexpected things and uh, just say like, oh, now now I changed my mind. I just just want to get rich and I I don't care about the community. We want to create mechanisms that do not require people to trust us. 
we want to be trustworthy. We want to create trust for our users, for, for developers who are building on the private platform. And the first line is the trust in, um, you know, like in our vision and, and in, in, in our ability to, to execute because people have make commitments. You, know, like you, you decide which platform you want to build on. Obviously, you have to trust that team to, to perform to, to the standard to which you expect. But they should not and should never trust us for being like for having integrity in any matters that happened on chain. The whole purpose of blockchain is to eliminate trust assumptions. And like this is what ZKSync is all about. This is why we're using Snarks and provide actually like Snarks or like zero knowledge proofs are a bit of a misnomer. Like the scientific community prefers to call it something like um, proofs of computational integrity like showing doing the computation in the correct way while no one is watching and enforcing all the rules of contracts of uh, whatever people agreed on whatever was committed to without anyone being responsible and being like carrying carrying actually like the the uh execution of this trust on his back so this is why full open source with mit apache yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense and actually segues me in pretty well into kind of like an overarching question between EVM compatibility and EVM equivalence. Obviously, that's kind of like the talk of the town right now between all the different ZK EVM teams in the race. Can you kind of explain the benefits and the trade-offs of the two? Uh, I'm happy to start and then Anthony can, can add more flavor to, to this. So uh, we see this, uh, we, we don't see it as a binary choice. We see the solutions, potential solutions in the design space as a spectrum between like full EVM equivalence where everything just is exactly like Ethereum with all the good things, but also with all the bad things, with all the problems and bottlenecks of Ethereum on the one hand. On the other hand, it's a complete uh, diversing from Ethereum and going in a, in a completely different direction using different programming language, different virtual machine, not following the standards and conventions, right? And all, all the projects are somewhere in between. Like none, none of the projects in the, at least in the ZK rollup space, on the, in the rollup space uh, that I'm aware of are like on, on, on the extremes. Like there are no projects that are 100% equivalent and there are no projects that are 100% not compatible with Ethereum because even if you take StarkNet, they follow some conventions, you know, like calling conventions is similar. The, the, the idea of like contracts and calls, et cetera, some things are similar. It's pretty far from EVM, but like it's still somewhere on you know like on on this far part of the spectrum. So where we are on this spectrum is uh, we are compatible on the on the uh, source code level today. You can take any contract written for Ethereum in Solidity or in Python. Oh, sorry, on uh, in um, in Viper, and you can compile it without modifying the contract in ninety nine percent of the cases. We don't support a few functions. We can talk about them. But if the code compiles, it will execute and it will perform its functions exactly as it was meant by the creators of the contract. And we, we paid a lot of attention. We actually had to make some architectural changes to, to, to enable this. Um, what will not work, apart from the, the things we don't support are, for example, self-destruct, which is a function that, that is not recommended and Ethereum is getting rid of it. There is a, it's, well, I think we're already scheduled for inclusion in some of the upgrades. Uh, if you are the minor functions that, that are not frequently used. Uh, but that means that like most of the tooling will work out of the box. You do not need to make any changes or you need to only make small changes in the scripts, you know, like replace the compiler or 
change the API to something else, etc. Uh, there are some things that will not work, like the binary code level tools, like bytecode debugger, will not work. So we will need to re-implement them, or we are working with partners to integrate the support of zk sync in those tools. Fortunately for us, those are very few and very they are rare, they are rarely used. Uh, however, we recognize that there is a need sometimes in, in some rare cases for like full bytecode compatibility. One good example of this is where you want to take um, an existing contract and preserve the address compatibility across multiple chains. You want like you know you, you want your noise safe to be like safe uh, multisig to be deployable in any chain regardless of where you deploy it at exactly the, the same address. This will require bytecode compatibility with Ethereum, and this is something we're considering. This creates an overhead. Like all the projects that are following more closer, um, com, you know, like, who, who are trying to go in, in the direction of, of more equivalence, like bytecode compatibility, full follow-up on, on the pre-compiles, et cetera, uh, they necessarily pay for this with the performance. And this was not a trade-off we were willing to make because we are aiming, our mission is to scale, uh, to accelerate the mass adoption of blockchains, of Ethereum specifically, for personal sovereignty. And that means like onboarding millions and potentially billions of people. Like that requires the absolute optimization to the maximum of the performance characteristics of uh, for provers. So we had to, to follow like on, on to, to be on the more performance side, but it's possible to also support full bytecode equivalence for some specific cases. And this is something we're working on. And Anthony, do you have anything to add to this? Honestly, not a huge amount. I think that covered it uh, very nicely. I will say, just to highlight, this was a very deliberate choice when it came to the design of ZK uh, Sync V2. And it took all of the learnings that the team, I mean, ZK Sync version one has been running in production for, I guess, of the order of two and a half years at this point. The cryptography team is a lot of experience in what will work, what's easy to do in ZK, and what's obviously very challenging. And when we were designing the system for version two, it really was this key question around, you know, everything is a trade-off to a degree when you're building these complex systems. We did not want to compromise on performance and the design of the system is such that this really is one of the things that we're really optimizing for. So between performance and reliability, like these are the two sort of combined North Stars for the engineering team at the moment. And, you know, these have been guiding principles right from when we were iterating on the design, you know, thinking through how do you go from version one to something general like version two? Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, do you guys mind getting a little bit deeper into the, like the proving process and um, the kind of the sequencing process in terms of like building blocks and how that works and what are the main challenges with uh, decentralizing that process in, in the longer term? Yeah, sure. So I'll talk a little bit about maybe where we are at the moment. Talk a bit about how we're thinking about decentralization, both of the sequencer and the prover. So the first thing I'll say is kind of rewinding 10 or so months back to um, roughly when we deployed the first version of the system, the version two system testnet. The question we really took a step back to try and answer was, you know, what's the shortest path between having the version of the system that we had at that point running on testnet and like really giving something to the community, like really building a production system that was the skeleton of the system that we really think this thing will be in the fullness of time. So, and broadly, actually, I would say that the roadmap that we made public this summer is a sort of external representation of that internal roadmap. 
And obviously, when you're looking at the system, it's no secret that this is complex. There is a lot of work to do to make these systems functional. There is a lot of um, risk that you have to think carefully about how you manage as you're building this system. And to build the decentralized version of the system to begin with, it's just like obviously strictly harder, like probably orders of magnitude harder. That being said, we, you know, it's very important to us to make sure that we design the system in a way where we are not locked into having a centralized version of the system that runs forever and are being thoughtful about the roadmap and thoughtful about our investments on the long, like long lead time research items such that actually we are like making progress on them today, even if we don't expect to see them in production for say six months or 12 months. So internally at the moment, the sequencer is fully centralized. The proving is centralized too. So for the first version of the system, we will be operating the stack. Um, both of these things are planned for decentralization. They are, well, I mean, it's a question of priorities. For us at the moment, the decentralization of the sequencer, I think is going to come first. I don't know necessarily that this is the most important thing to do, but we're already actively working on it and we are, um, building an internal testnet with a, a decentralized version of the sequencer, partly as a like mitigation strategy against like overfitting the centralized version of the, of the system that we have today. But one of the major things that we're planning on the proof side is, you know, for, for us today, the hardware required to run these provers is, um, it, they're, they're, they're beefy GPUs, right? You're not going to have many people operating these things at home, like sat on their desktop PC. So we are planning and I've actually already started on the cryptography side of a major upgrade to our proof system. And a big motivation for the upgrade to the proof system is actually to lower the hardware requirements for operating a prover. So as part of this, you know, obviously relatively recently, a large number of GPUs became freed up uh, with Ethereum going through the merge. We really want to get to a point where we can distribute and decentralize the proof network as well as obviously decentralizing the sequencer. So both important, for us, we really wanted to make sure that we, you know, there's a lot of value in when you're building the systems to make sure you're building them in a way where you're getting feedback from the real world. It was really important, like to me personally, to the engineering team, that we didn't attempt to kind of go heads down, build the perfect version of the system over the course of like however long that would have taken us and, you know, do this fully in isolation, do this without the community. So getting the system live in its first version where the architecture was correct, but we knew we could iterate, um, where the performance was correct for where we need, need it to be today, but we know we can iterate. Like all of these were things we we're optimizing for, but we do have a team kind of actively working today on the internal test net where we can take the centralizer and we can do uh, yeah, so take the sequencer and decentralize it. Um, we are not actively working on decentralizing the proof network until we have go gone through this upgrade of the proof system, but this will obviously be a huge priority for us. And, you know, it's a, yeah, the decentralization of this, of this system is incredibly important to the engineering team. So we're, guarding against technical decisions that lock us into a centralized version of the system today um because we know this is where we want to be and obviously this is like uh important for many properties of the system that we want to achieve i, I would just add one sentence it, it's not just important it's non-negotiable for us we are building a protocol that will be owned by community like a community cannot depend on one company to operate this concern like it's 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 it's, an, it's a completely obvious thing it's just a matter of priorities of like, do we build something with, that is perfect, but is not available, or do we give the community something that they can immediately use? And when then we upgrade it to the full version, but like it will be done. 
in a very short term. Now, when you think about the actual process of decentralization, do you are you thinking about how a token fits into this role outside of just distribution? Like, is it actually involved in in this actual in the process itself, uh, or do you just view the token as like this distribution method to to give everybody uh, to give the community ownership of the protocol? No, as I said in the beginning, the we we only introduced a token in the system because there was a need for a token. It's not that we we, we just like we took the system uh, like or some like technology. It's separate, and then the token thing is separate. The community is separate. No, the token is actually required to operate the system properly in a fault-tolerant way, in, in a Byzantine fault-tolerant way, in order to make sure that the anyone can become a validator or anyone can participate in the consensus of these validators so that the community does not rely on any one particular. And like, if, if someone is faulty or malicious, even worse, then they can easily be replaced by by the community. And then we have the ultimate nuclear option of the community to fork away if all of that didn't work. But that, that should be like, that is expensive. Imagine, so like we're building a mechanism to um, enable people to, sub, to tra submit transactions from layer one if they feel censored, if their transactions are not being included by the validators. And we are making this mechanism, we're designing it in such a way as to support mass migrations. So if an entire fraction of the user base is being censored for whatever reason, they can just coordinate and submit a big batch of transactions and, and just like, migrate to a different network. But you can imagine that's costly. Like any time you need to rely, fall back on the social coordination, it must be an extraordinary event. You cannot do it every time a server goes down. Or like an organization is, for whatever reason, like gets becomes bankrupt or or malicious stakeholder or whatever. So like you need to build technical systems that provide a pretty good reliability and security and redundancy in the very adversarial environment in which we find ourselves within the blockchain world, and then have these fallback mechanisms where you rely on layer zero essentially on the, on the community to like. Keep it, keep it in check. Makes a lot of sense. Um, I want to get into L3s a little bit because Alex, I believe you were potentially the one who came up with the idea of ZK Porter. I might be wrong on that, but you guys have since pivoted over to Opportunity um, to launch a, that on Testnet, hopefully in Q1 or Q2 of next year. How is that going? How do you see this vision playing out? Um, Steve, uh, one of your colleagues, has talked many times about you know the grand vision of L3s on like a unilateral proving system. So just to hear about that and some of the advantages and, and a status update would be fantastic. I'm happy to start and again, at, at, uh, let Anthony add more. Um, and I want to begin by giving credit to uh, like, I was not the one who like invented ZK Porter from, from scratch. Like in every invention, you are standing on the shoulders of giants. Like every invention is just one small step, one simple idea that makes the previous technology is like a little better. So um, this applies to ZK Porter. And by the way, ZK Porter has not much to do with layer trees. It's, it's a separate technology. It's, um, it's about data availability and making sure that we can build something that it will scale. Like it, it, it has application in L3 world because it, it allows L3 to become way more scalable, like unbounded scalable, but it's, it's an addition to L3. But not, regardless, both ZK Porter and L3s are ideas that are built on many iterations of other great people. So like for 
ZK Porter StarCraft team came up with the idea of Volition, where you have ZK Porter, oh, sorry, ZK Rollup and Validium, and you can interoperate. We added the idea of like using tokens to make it permissionless and, and uh, have data availability, um, uh, you know, adding guardians who can, anyone can run the software and, and make a system a lot more reliable. With uh, layer three, our biggest innovation is not the idea of layer three itself. It was was kind of obvious. It was on the surface. StarCraft came again. They, they, they were the first to announce this idea. Um, the biggest breakthrough or like the, the biggest design choice that we are extremely excited about in ZK Sync for our version of L3 is what we call um, hyper chains connected by hyper bridges. That's an extremely interesting idea. So like the, um, we probably will, we, we will take an entire episode just talking about that. But in short, um, if you make every layer three separate from each other and like anyone can deploy their own version, that's going to be one world with a lot of diversity. But if you say, let's standardize some aspects of this protocol, like everyone can do whatever they want. They have full freedom and full sovereignty and full customizability over how the chain is going to work, uh, how they're going to like using, how are they going to sequence transactions, uh, provide data availability, build privacy or not build privacy, or like use rollup or ZK Porter or pure volume or whatever. Uh, you can do all of that and introduce your custom rules. But if we all agree on the same standard for bridging, and for 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 proving this, the the, uh, the circuits, we get some extremely interesting properties. Like all of a sudden, we can build a network, essentially the 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 Internet of Value, where any user on any of the hyperchains can send transactions to any other user on any other hyperchain with zero trust assumptions, zero capital requirements. And um, essentially, at the cost of a simple transaction between within each chain. So that is the most exciting thing about our vision of of L3. Yeah, I can add a couple couple of pieces uh, specific to opportunity if it's useful because I think Alex covered a lot of the things that we find really interesting. I would say there's also a lot of value in us working on this sooner than maybe was obvious even a few months ago. Um, there's value in terms of figuring out what and how these things are. You know, speaking with partners who have ideas for use cases that maybe we wouldn't have come up with ourselves. It's been really interesting and hearing about the types of uh, layer three that people may want to configure. It gives us a lot of ideas for like actually how to prioritize, you know, problem solving from an engineering perspective. I think there's a lot of value in us also going through this exercise now in terms of even making the layer two better. So for example, there were certain pre-compilers we hadn't prioritized for uh, baby alpha because we knew the system was going to be in this closed state. We haven't needed them initially. We like things that we would want to add, um, but to be able to do, you know, verification of a layer three at layer two, you need these pre-compiles. So it like forces us to do some of these things. And these things are not, um, they're generally useful, right? These are useful for any other protocol that, or any other project that wanted to take advantage of verification of layer two. More than that, I think there's some other things that, you know, if you think about it from a purely engineering point of view are really interesting. You know, how do we design the system in a way where it's, sort of agnostic to how it's being deployed in terms of the environment, right? Like layer two assumed Ethereum is the layer one, but in a, in a world where you're deploying a layer three or maybe a layer four or who knows what, can you build the system in a way where 
it's easy to deploy these systems. You haven't got to build these, you know, it's not overfit to the original idea for the layer twos. As we take on projects that we mentioned earlier around decentralization of the sequencer, how do we um, preserve the ability to deploy and configure these systems in different ways where, you know, some uh, use case, maybe that, I don't know, party X wants to deploy a very centralized version of the layer three. Well, if we've like fully decentralized the layer two, like have we lost something that actually would have been useful for one of these people at some point in the future? So yeah, from us, uh, from our perspective, I think there's really interesting engineering challenges. How do we make it easy to deploy these things, tear them down, redeploy them, and like really iterate on on building and, and testing ideas in the space. I think partnering with people in the ecosystem, both builders and users, will help us actually get to a point where opportunity delivers something that we can start to see much further into the future for, as we really understand layer threes. And then part of this stuff, you know, you have a lot of great ideas on the whiteboard, but like building things, testing things, and like really thinking through the problems and actually having a real prototype, will I think really give us a lot more clarity over the future of how these systems evolve and um, how they fail. This is another thing that we're really interested in. Like where are the new problems that we'll find at layer three that maybe are less obvious when you're thinking about these systems in a in like more abstract way? So when I'm, when I'm thinking about uh, the L3s, right? So I think about, you know, the Ethereum sitting at the base layer, providing the security to the L2s, which the L2s then take that security and provide scalability to the L3s. And then so if I'm thinking about L3s, what are, what are the main appeals of this ecosystem, right? Would that be like the customization that you'd get at this point? Uh, and the fact that, you know, you'd have like a web uh, in some sorts of interconnected chains at that point? Yeah, I think in the... Again, this is something where value comes gradually in waves. So it's going to be something that you can use immediately. And then there are longer term implications of this technology. Uh, the first and immediate uh, value that we will create is, yes, the, you, you can build your own dev chains that fully inherit security from Ethereum, but you have control over how you want to structure them. Um, with regard to data availability, which determines the costs of transactions and like whether or not they depend on the data availability from Ethereum. Um, it's about the sequencer. It's about the approach to uh, MEV. Uh, and very importantly, it's about privacy because currently we're not using the zero knowledge aspect of zero knowledge proofs, but it can be used, it should be used. And it, it's very important for, it's very important for, for, um, you know, like for normal consumers making payments but also for enterprises, for banking, for doing, you know, you cannot make all of the financial activity of the world completely public to everyone. At some point you need to introduce privacy. And this is something that is very easy to do with, uh, uh, with layer three. You essentially get it out of the box for free. All you need to do is to make sure that the sequencer does not publish data on chain, but instead they keep it private and they only publish the, um, um, the root hashes or maybe encrypted data or something like this. So, like, but but the the technology to create something private is the same exact technology as just to build a generic layer three. Over time, yeah, more of, of the other uh, values materialize, such as yes, we are building a web of value that will allow to scale Ethereum indefinitely to arbitrary number. Like it, it's going to be limited, just like internet is limited only by the amount of hardware resources by number of GPUs or ASICs or whatever you need in the world to, to, to make the computations. Uh, but you can add as many of them as you want 
and the system will still be growing. If you can't tell, we love data here at Blockroots Research and Chainalysis, the leading blockchain analytics company, shares this passion with us. We use data to extract alpha and find the next thing coming in DeFi, but Chainalysis is doing the gritty work and building trust in blockchains. To onboard the next trillion dollars of capital into the industry, we need to grow safe consumer access to cryptocurrency and promote more financial freedom with less risk. Chainalysis has some of the most comprehensive and reliable data in the space, and they use this data to power a full suite of their solutions that can be utilized by industry professionals. Best-in-class training and certifications are also led by Chainalysis and some of the brightest minds in the space. If you haven't heard of Chainalysis, you got to check them out, and we'll link to them in the show notes. I don't want to pry at this too hard because I'm sure it's still getting figured out. I mean, we're all kind of figuring it out as we go here. But uh, I'm just curious because I hate bridges. So, like, how does that work? Like, how do you have a completely trustless way to go from chain A to chain B in a layer three world? Um, I can recommend, so I can give you a high level technical overview and I, I, I will refer to a uh, paper called Slush uh, from geometry guys who explore this, this topic in depth. And we, we had the exact same idea. Uh, we, we read the paper and we were like, wow, this is, this, this is a really, really good write up of, of the idea. But essentially if you, uh, the idea is not new. If you look at the privacy chains, such as Zcash, the pioneer of privacy, the way they work is, uh, you make a commitment to your transaction first, and then you, you, you kind of redeem this transaction. So first you, you create a node in some ledger in, in your Merkle tree saying like, I have spent some amount of my Zcash here. And you provide as your knowledge proof that this is valid and that it's added to the ledger. And then on the other side, uh, once the, the recipient wants to redeem these tokens, they, they again, they, they, they provide a proof that there is a entry on the ledger somewhere such as uh, someone has sent me this amount of, of these tokens. So I can kind of claim them and, and add to my balance. So now you can do it within one chain to achieve privacy, or you can do it between multiple chains to achieve scalability. Because you can, it's very easy to concatenate Merkle trees. Concatenating Merkle trees is just taking the root hash of one and putting it as, as a leaf of, of the other. So like all, well like it, it's very technical and like for maybe less technical audience, what it means is any layer three can freely read the state of any other layer three. I mean, the last finalized state, not maybe not the most recent state of validators, but the last state that was finalized and was propagated down to Ethereum. Uh, but like they, they can read arbitrary count, arbitrary point on, on any data, and they don't have to have full state of all the other hyperchains. All they need is a short Merkle proof of a particular point on a particular chain. And once you have this point, you can say like, oh, I trust that other hyperchain because it has exactly the same circuit as, as me or as, as, as the chain I'm building on. So like for me, it's, it's the same as trusting myself. It's, it, I, I know the, 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 it was produced running exactly the same code as I'm using. So I'm just going to add this, this balance to my account. And this is an operation which takes place just in two chains and like doesn't affect really uh you don't have to propagate all the data down to like layer two or layer one all you need to propagate is one hash per chain and it, it just like logarithmically compressing it, for more details again please refer to the slush paper yeah that bit makes it makes a ton of sense and it's exciting to think about like 
that type of world. And when you say they're running on the same circuit, is that like there's going to be? I think earlier you mentioned that there'll be need to be some portion of the L2 stack that becomes uh, like widely adopted. Uh, what exactly is that? And you know, there's multiple people or multiple teams that are actively working on building out you know what their version of the zk EVM. Uh, and so all these L3s would need to live within the same. Uh, circuit then. So what, what what exactly piece is it that needs to be standardized? It actually has to be the virtual machine itself. Like the the, 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 the most basic circuit or essentially like the, the thing that executes transactions. So this is a really interesting question on how we can reach interoperability with other chains. Like um, it's yeah, I, I think I, I, I look at different competing approaches, more like experimentation. We're in the very early phase of creating ZKVM. So like we built the first ZKVM. I, I, I think we introduced the idea two years ago and, and we, we built the uh, testnet, launched it internally a year ago, and we opened it to the public uh, in February last year. So it's running now for uh, how many, like 10 months. So. Uh, all the other approaches were much later. Like they, they, they came up with something like some test nets were announced around um, uh, public test nets uh, of uh, like Polygon and Scroll were, were announced around DevCon. So um, we will see how this, this approaches work and, and which one is most efficient. And eventually, I think we will all converge on one single battle tested and most efficient approach to like, like you know, it, it's it's like, I can compare it to the, to the IP protocol that powers the internet. In the beginning of internet, there were multiple competing protocols. IP was not, not the only one. There were uh, stream protocols, there were packet protocols, there was IP, there was UDP, uh, uh, TCP, IP, you know, like it's, they're still being used, but there were also com com competing uh, protocols to the internet protocol itself. But eventually everyone realized that if you use one standard, you can create one giant network where everyone can talk to everyone else. And this is not a disadvantage. It doesn't mean that you need to close down, uh, that, that you're, like, your data is going to be transparent to everyone else. And the only way to guard your data is to build intranets. No, you just build firewalls. You encrypt your data. You use SS, uh, uh, SSL, you, need, you use HTTPS, etc. But you need to agree with this one single piece, which is common across like different hardware, different channels, fiber optics, wireless networks, uh, you know, like modem connections, all of them agree on this one single piece of IP. And this is how we see the, the circuits that, that will eventually crystallize. Like, okay, this is the way. And the, this version, and you, you're absolutely right. It's, it's like, it's important to define what this part is. And the smaller it is, the better. We want it to be as small as possible and have as many eyes as possible looking into it and into its security and making audits so that like it's easier for everyone to agree on this one step. You know, coming back to uh, what Alex was saying earlier about our open source strategy, like all of this is consistent, right? We want to get to the point where we've opened the protocol enough. Eventually, you know, our aspirations are to be one contributor of many to a protocol that does uh, converge on a standard. And we can actually start to talk about how these systems scale and, scale in a way where it's the community scaling it. So, no, this again, it's informed open source strategy is really how we think about things at the moment. Winding back a little bit, I know you guys just launched your, you know, alpha mainnet open to developers. How is that going? Are you seeing good traction? What applications are you most excited about? Would love to get your thoughts there. 
Yeah, I can say a couple of bits and then Alex, if you want to jump in. Um, so at the moment, the state of the system, like we're really excited. We hit a huge milestone that for us had been something we were pushing hard to achieve, which was to have a version of the system that was, you know, our real MVP, the version of the system that we were comfortable deploying to mainnet after having run to Alex's point around 10 months or so at that test uh, on testnet, major improvements over that time, major challenges solved. Um, but we had the first production version of the system. We wanted to deploy it onto mainnet for a number of different reasons. And I would say they're like broadly bucketed under security um, and performance. So at the moment, the system is still closed in the sense that we are the only ones who are able to access the system. It's running on mainnet, it's live, but it's live in a very, very restricted way. It's not like a full live production system today and external developers can't deploy on it yet. What we're doing right now is we're going through a series of activities on the security side, including audits. I mentioned Open Zeppelin earlier, layer one. I think we published the findings from our layer one audit relatively recently. Layer two and multiple other pieces of the system are, are under audit at the moment. Um, and then we're also working on the proof of performance. So this is a pretty tricky technical problem. And you know, using our GPU resources efficiently is important to make sure that the system runs in an sort of economically efficient manner. So we have a bunch of activity going on the security side. We ran a code arena contest. Um, we have a lot more uh, to say about things that we'll be doing on the security side. Um, incentivize hacknets and various different bits and pieces, but like having the system live on mainnet, learning to operate the system, and really iterating on the performance of the system are, are where we are today. We are very close to the next major milestone, which is what we've called fair onboarding alpha. So at this point, um, projects, and I think there's more than 200 projects who have registered to use the system today, including many exciting big names across DeFi, uh, gaming, NFTs, you know, kind of, um, a big cross-section of, of the community, they will be able to uh, bridge value into the system, deploy their applications, kind of, you know, have a period where there's no sort of first come first served uh, effect. It will be everyone is able to deploy at the same time. They have, you know, some period, which we will define and talk more about and, and have more detail on soon, where they can test knowing that at the same time, everyone sort of goes live uh, instantaneously. So the first milestone will be development teams only. There'll be some period. And then after some relatively short window, we'll uh, release the constraints on the bridge and actually users will be able to bridge value into the system. And simultaneously, essentially the entire ecosystem goes live at once, which is I think, um, yeah, pretty exciting uh, prospect. So we are not far away from any of these things. We are in the closing weeks of one of the major security audits that we are working on at the moment. Obviously, we can't commit to being like, you know, we'll get this thing on June, oh, sorry, uh, January X, we'll be live on January X plus one. We want to make sure that we've got a window to evaluate any findings, implement any changes. The GPU performance work is ongoing and uh, we'll likely be publishing a blog post soon. We want to publish, we want to make the system and the engineering that we're doing a lot more transparent. So we, we are aggregating all of the work that we're doing. We'll be speaking very publicly about some of the changes we made, the effect on the system, and we'll be slowly opening up a lot more of what we're doing on the engineering side. Um, but yeah, coming months, we'll see these two exciting milestones, first developers and then users. I, I will just, just add that we see a lot of developer activity on, on our testnet, which is running since February and is very stable. And we have hundreds of projects building there. We have uh, over, I think, about 200 partners committed to launch 
on the launch day of ZK Sync, which will make ZK Sync the largest launch uh, of, of a mainnet in, in blockchain history so far, to the best of my knowledge. So I'm personally excited about all of them. We have some really big names, starting with Uniswap and Aave, uh, Balancer Curve, you know, like all the top DeFi protocols, uh, a lot of uh, really interesting uh, uh, community protocols that are less known of uh, a lot of new things that people experiment with on ZK Sync because it's uh, uh, you know it's it's going to offer very interesting properties it's using snarks and, and it, it it can create communities based on that uh, like we had Zigzag Exchange launching on ZK Sync version one and the whole community was like people who are excited about zero knowledge proof scaling. Uh, so I, I don't want to give preferences. I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely excited about all of them. You mentioned snarks like multiple times throughout the conversation. And I think, you know, a lot of people contrast things that ZK EVM teams are building with things that Starkware is building, not to say one approach is better than the other. We're still figuring it out, but I guess what are the main trade-offs and why did you make the design choices to not try and use a more performant language like Cairo or, you know, using snarks over Starks like Starkware has? Oh, that's an amazing question. So first of all, uh, it's a matter of terminology. Like technically, Starks are a subset of Snarks. Starks are also Snarks. So like we're not bound by a particular technology or a particular zero knowledge proof protocol. Right now we're using Plonk, uh, but we have uh, came up with a proof system called Redshift uh, a couple of years ago. Now then the, the guys from Mir protocol, now part of Polygon, um, uh, made a, uh, like took this idea and made some changes in the parameters, came up with something like Plonky 2, which is essentially redshift with, uh, with a smaller field and, and, and a few interesting properties. So the protocols are evolving and I believe that all of the teams will eventually converge on something that is more, most efficient. Like right now we're in a phase of a Cambrian explosion of zero knowledge protocols. But at some point, there will be consolidation, and the you know we will be coming slower to um, to uh, asymptotic like improvement, like where where the the pace of innovation is not as wild and it's like more stable, and then everyone can see okay, this is the way to do it because Starks depend on the efficient hash functions that are both efficient in circuits and on the on the processor. There are some candidates for such hash functions that are currently being tested. Like once they are available, it's going to be a lot cheaper to use them. But for now, recursion is like probably cheaper on, uh, you know, like on, 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 on this other system. So we are not dogmatic. We are, we are completely agnostic and open to, to whatever the latest research will be. And we will just switch to these proof systems. But the great thing about all of them, Plonk, Starks, Plonky2, like, uh, uh, Hyperplonk, all, all, all of the things, is that they basically all use the same format to represent the programs. We call it in, in, in the world of Snarks, we call it arithmetization, how you transform your bytecode or the logic of your program into a like polynomial, you know, like in, in a one huge polynomial or like a matrix of numbers in the finite fields. Uh, and this format is like stri strikingly similar. Like it's essentially the same thing between Starks and like, or, or very similar. So it's very easy for us to transition from what we have today to a new proof system without changing the circuits, essentially. So um, the, the right now, what matters for Ethereum is scalability and low cost of transactions and relatively high frequency of uh, checkpoints of, 
at the speed of finalization of your blocks on Ethereum. So if you look at specialized ZK rollups, such as ZK Sync version one, a rollup for payments and swaps and NFTs, and StarkNet, uh, sorry, Stark, um, they, StarkX, the the specialized ZK rollup for uh, for for an exchange. Uh, both of them are uh, producing, like, make, making very similar things, but in ZK Sync version one, you have blocks like about ten times more frequently finalized in Ethereum than in Starknet. And the reason for this is that like we're using Plonk, which costs half a million gas to verify, whereas Starks require five million gas to verify. So you have to wait for a lot more transactions to accumulate in the block to justify the cost to verify this block on Ethereum. Because the verification costs are the same no matter how many transactions you add there. Right? So this is one important trade-off. Uh, in, in the future, again, like we will be using just the most efficient thing and uh, uh, in the in the in the long longer term future, it must be something fully transparent. I ca I cannot imagine like all of the world's financial systems relying on on some trusted setup. No matter how many trusted participants and reputable participants were in that setup, has to be like a completely transparent system with uh, something like uh, Firebase stocks or um, uh, or Halo or like you know similar things. Yeah, not, not much more to add, except to say, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the, the cryptography team are already looking into the next version of the proof system. And as part of that, are looking into things like, yeah, Firebase proofs, Hyperplonk, moving away from a trusted setup. Look, a lot of the things that Alex talked about are things we're actively thinking about. Um, and really the question also comes down to, you know, how do we optimize for not so much the specifics of the proof system itself, but like the things that really, really matter at the system level, like how do we optimize for security? How do we optimize for simplicity and, and ease of modifications, ease of extensions? Like those things really matter. And yeah, so we're balancing off, balancing trade-offs between um, what we want to see in the proof system and also like how easy it is to kind of keep iterating on the system, keep delivering for, for users with zk v 2 yeah, account abstraction's been been a hot topic recently, and I'm curious. You know, if with when that uh, gets implemented, then it gives the ability for transactions to be paid, the gas for transactions to be paid in any token. And I'm curious if that's something that you think about when you're designing systems like an L2 that ultimately are paying back, uh, paying uh, settling transactions on the L1, and of course paying gas. Is is that something that you've you've considered? Yes. So uh, this is implemented and live today. So we support account abstraction natively on ZK Sync version two. This has been, I think, one of the most exciting and interesting features that um, really highlights how we're thinking about, you know, crypto becoming something that can really scale to millions of people when we're talking about usability and not just scalability, right? What you can do with account abstraction, um, what the tools, you know, with, to your point about giving flexibility to development teams to think about, you know, do we want to pay for transactions on behalf of our users? Do I want to sort of configure my payment interface to accept some subset of tokens that I care about? Uh, like the level of flexibility that I think we'll see developer teams um, have at layer two is just much richer. And really it lets you start to design wallets. I think, you know, there's many good examples of people who are innovating on wallet design. I think Argent is one of the ones that obviously is very close to us. We've seen some really creative and uh, compelling features that are just you know, you can't imagine um, that, you know, many of us today, like as, as cliche as it is, it's still early. 
and the user experience at layer one can still be pretty rough, right? Like you still um, may want to send those test transactions or double check that, you know, like copy paste errors are not there. And really when you see the innovation from wallets leveraging these account abstraction features at layer two, you can start to actually see a world in which millions of people are gonna be using this thing. Because to a large degree, I think for most people, the blockchain should be abstracted away. I mean, really like in the same way as people using Facebook today don't care necessarily about the internet protocols on which it's built, like many applications are gonna to want to be built in a way that people don't care that there's a blockchain involved. And I think account abstraction is really a bet on, uh, yeah, a bet on bringing crypto to a community that either doesn't or can't engage with it today. Um, and it's not just scalability at the level of providing an execution environment that can handle those number of transactions, but also providing a user experience that, that can support people who don't, or aren't interested in, um, you know, learning about the technology or, or protecting themselves in the way that they might need to. So I, 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 I want to share a story about this. Recently, like a few weeks ago, a friend of mine uh, calls me and says, I, Alex, I, I, I was like, I received a crypto payment from my employer. They, they agreed like, he, he will be paid in crypto. And he received USDC. And he was like, I, I was trying to like send it to an exchange. Uh, but I couldn't because it said like, I need to pay some gas with like whatever. And like, I don't, I don't understand it. It's like, like what, what does it mean? Like it says I need some ether. I don't have ether. So I tried to change this USDC into ether to pay for gas, but I can't because I don't have ether to pay gas. And the problem is like in, 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 in the ERC 20 standard, there is no way for him to get, uh, to make this transaction without having, uh, ether. Like he cannot just like let the wallet to, to pay for it. He, he actually must have ether in the first place. So he must ask someone to send him ether and only then can he authorize the transaction or like they, they need to do some chain or whatever. So like it illustrates perfectly how you get something. If you don't think about the user experience in the end, uh, it's like, you're going to get some mess. And for us, I just going to repeat it because it's very important. And like, we, we keep doing everything we do is centered around the mission and the mission is to accelerate the mass adoption of crypto and mass adoption means usability. Like as Anthony just said, the UX is at the core of it. Like, the mass adoption of PGP never happened. What happened is like mass adoption of Signal and Telegram with like, I'm not sure how, how secure, like how encrypted Telegram is, like let's say Signal or like even WhatsApp, right? Why? PGP was there for 20 years, but it was so complicated that even like the most advanced cryptographers in the world are not really using it between themselves because it's, it's just too, too cumbersome to, to, to deal with. That is a part of mass adoption and everything we're building at ZK Sync, we're having the end user in mind. This is how we build version one. This is how we're building version two. Like we're imagining if this thing is to be used as the standard of the internet of value, is it going to be usable? We have all the functions sufficient for it. Is it going to be affordable? Like, can we scale it? You know, like all the aspects are done with this final vision in mind. And this, this obviously includes account abstraction. This is why we did it as the very first thing, diversion from Ethereum, because Ethereum's EAP for account abstraction was like heavily discussed in the community. It was not final. And we realized like we cannot launch without it because it's not going to be something really usable by for masses, for millions of people.
Yeah, I would venture to bet that all four of us on this call have bridged somewhere at some point and then not had the gas token when we got there. <laughs> it's very frustrating. Um, but uh, you guys have been super generous with your time, so I just want to round it out with one more question. What are you guys most excited about in crypto broadly? It can be anything you want, ZK Sync related or anything else over the next 12 to 24 months, let's call it. I mean, for me, uh, it's hard to look beyond our roadmap. I mean, as cliche as it sounds, like we it feels like we are right on the precipice of, of really, un, you know, being able to open the gates to something that we've been thinking about for a long time. To Alex's point, you know, years of work have kind of led up to the point where we have this version of the system. We are really kind of in these last moments of you know, thinking through, like, have we uh, crossed all the T's, dotted all the I's? Like, really, if we, like, have we shouldered the early risk from a security perspective? Like, have we really pushed the system performance to where we feel comfortable to launch it? Um, we have a large number of partners ready to use the system. And for me, I, I can't look much beyond the next couple of milestones. I think it's going to be challenging, exciting. Um, but ultimately, you know, we're, we're right there with, um, with a system, which I thought many people would have expected uh, to take much, much longer. Um, an enormous amount to do, but looking forward to doing it in production and uh, with the community. It's kind of similar for me. I'm I'm, I'm super focused on on what we're doing in uh, you know, like we're we're scaling the the company, we're scaling teams, we're uh, doing a lot of uh, research, development, uh, uh, brainstormings. Uh, but in general, how I feel about crypto is what I'm really excited about in crypto are the brave things that change the status quo. That like some innovations that like kind of do this creative disruption of 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 the way uh, old systems used to work. And some examples of this are like obviously DeFi, which is like a radical innovation in finance. Um, uh, things around identity. I'm really looking forward to the identity solutions that can replace. I, I mean, just just like passwords and uh, the way you you authorize in credit cards. Like every time I go to a new city and have to ride a, a bike, you know, like the, the scooters. I have to fill like a thousand forms and add my credit card and like SMS confirmation, all that stuff. Or like if you're trying to buy a, a, a plane ticket for the new airline, you have to do the same process over and over and over again. You can be just replaced with one single click, like connect your wallet and like authorize some, some data and you just like, confirm that you, you're willing to provide this data in a uh, privacy preserving manner but also like authorizing you and saying like, yeah, you're a real legit person and you are not a fraudster and, and you are willing to pay and provide your identity all at one, all in once without like passwords, which are like notoriously insecure, right? So, uh, so identities, um, things like, you know, like industry disrupting thing, uh, ideas like DSI, decentralized science, like where all of a sudden you can, you can compete with huge, pharma concern uh, concerns on like uh these big organizations uh because you can directly be appealing to your to, to your future users to, to consumers something like uh, what, what uh, crowdfunding did uh, in the past but like specifically applied to like patents and and scientific ideas and scientific innovation because i think there, there's a lot, there are a lot of problems in academia like well, people from academia i speak to are like all very worried about them. And the, the sooner we can transition to something decentralized where people with genuine interest and passion for science can just go and get funded directly, like bypassing all of these bureaucracies and inefficient processes, uh, that's going to be really, really cool. And I, I, I know a couple of projects that are working in this direction that, that are really interesting. Um, so like the, the, the things in this direction, 
there are many more, but like I, I, which I'm not aware of because I'm super focused on TK Synchro. Awesome, yeah. Crypto is definitely exciting. It's moving quick. I'm excited to see how it, uh, you know, pans out over the next 12 to 24 months. But thank you guys so much for joining on. We'll have to do this again sometime. Um, but if you want to tell people where they can find you, that'd be great. Sure. You, the best way to follow us is to go to Twitter and search for ZK Sync, one word, and uh, all official updates, everything we, we share is, is posted there first, in real time. Uh, we are building the teams. We, we, after raising a really big round now, and especially in the bear market, it's, uh, um, it's, you know, like, it, it's a good place. Like if you are passionate about freedom, and trustless technologies. And, and I think the recent events highlighted again, how important is it to build systems that rely on math and publicly auditable, uh, auditable code and not on individual people who can be corrupt or can become corrupt or like misbehave at some point. Uh, so if you are passionate about those things and you are a blockchain engineer or you, you just like you, you, you want to explore, we have a number of positions open. So if you go to zkysync.io, you will find a link to our uh, jobs page and you, you can see things there or you can just apply if you feel that yeah, you, you can be useful in, in a different role. Maybe just one thing to add as well. We have a very active community discord, um, developers, users, lots of people that are building on ZK Sync V2 today on testnet. If you want to come get involved, there's also lots of tutorials. Um, yeah, more feedback from the community is always welcome. And um, there's a team that always happy to chat about what we're doing. Awesome. Thanks so much.